did for me what I couldn't do for myself. That's the way it was. Today, God does for me what I can't do for myself. Welcome to the Recovery Edgecast, Episode 4. My name is Alfredo Nevarez, and I am an alcoholic. Today I got to sit down with Arlene Seymour, who has 41 years of sobriety. I met her at the Triangle Club in Longmont, Colorado, where I'm from. Well, Colorado anyways. After listening to this, it sounded like a love story filled with some tragedy. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Let's get started. I'm Arlene Seymour. I'm an alcoholic. I got sober July 15th, 1979 in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, I have a home group. It is at the 5.30 meeting um, at the Triangle Club. I have been sober 41 years. Isn't that a weird number? Um, 40 was a little easier, but 41 years sounds kind of silly, but that's how long I've been sober. All right. So why don't you start us off with a little bit of background of how you grew up and what that was like as a child for you. I was raised in Rock Springs, Wyoming. I was born in Rock Springs, Wyoming. I was, um, adopted as an infant. My, um, Birth father was killed in the mines in Rock Springs. He was crushed between two coal cars before I was a month old. Uh, we, I was uh, the youngest of five children. We ended up being adopted in the, uh, uh, within the family of my birth father. Um, I, so we all grew up knowing we were brothers and sisters. We just lived in different families in different homes. Uh, that was our natural, that was just normal for us kids. Um, my sister and I grew up in the same home. Uh, I can remember as a little girl, um, my brother coming, well, I was with my brother uh, at his house and we went to the liquor store and I was in his wagon and we picked up a case of beer and a couple of bottles of booze, and he, he, I'd say, God, I was like seven, so he had to have been 11, maybe I was six, but anyway, he was four years older than me, and he sat me on top of this beer that we were taking home to his mother and father. He wheeled me back to his house, and there we were. We could do that in our little hometown. So that was, that was our normal life. My adopted mom was an alcoholic. My adopted father died when I was five years old. And so I, I was raised by, by my mom. And when I say my mom, that was my adopted mother. Um, How did you know that your adopted mother was an alcoholic? Well, she had a nightclub. And she and my, her brother bought this nightclub west of Green River, which was uh, probably 15 miles from Rock Springs. Uh, on Sundays, we got to go out there and help her clean. I always said, I'll clean behind the bar. 
and that was my fun place. I used to take the caps off the bottles and run my finger along the inside of the bottle and lick my finger. Some of it tasted like terrible, but some of it was pretty good. <laughs> and so that was my first initiation on booze. But my mom, I can remember as a young girl and a teenager, my mom being drunk and passed out. And I didn't know what an alcoholic was at that time, but I remember, I remember her being drunk, so drunk. Later on, of course, I, uh, I just thought she was a drunk. But as I got sober, I, uh, I know she was an alcoholic. And that was sad because she didn't know where to go. She didn't know to go anywhere. So, that was uh, how I grew up. Um, Irish family, they all drank. Everybody drank. My grandmother drank, my mom drank, her brothers drank. Um, all but one sister, my Aunt Trudy, and she didn't drink, nor did her husband. But the rest of the family were drunks. Um, my Adopted father and mom in the 30s built a bar in Rock Springs, which still stands. It's called the Toastmaster. Of course, that's where the booze came into the house, was from the Toastmaster as a little child. Uh, and that's, that's the way it was. My mom t would tell me stories of how they, they would have cocktail parties and when I was a baby and I'd be crawling along the floor and I, after the parties and I would uh, pick up glasses and drink them that was left over. They would have to snatch these glasses up pretty fast or I'd get them before they got them. And, uh, <laughs> so that, that was my initial, who this is pretty good stuff, makes me feel pretty good. So I... Uh, How old were you when, at that point? When that point... Probably a year old. You were one? Mm -hmm. Amazing. Yeah. Wasn't walking then, because I had, when my, when my birth parent, when my adopted parents got me, I had rickets of malnutrition. I was ready to die. Uh, the doctors told my mom and dad they were taking on a funeral expense. And my mother said, no, I will make her live. And she did. So here I am, at 78 years old, and she made me live. And <clears throat> so my adopted father died when I was five. And again, like I say, I was raised by a, uh, just my mom. My sister and I were raised by just my mom. And we had a good life. Uh, we knew we were loved. Uh, we knew we were chosen children. And we were always told that. We were her angels. So, I, uh, I got pregnant when I was, uh, we moved to Denver. We moved around a lot. We went to California, we went to Denver, uh, to Aurora when I was uh, in the eighth grade. And uh, it's, it's like wherever, 
one of the family moved, my mom's family, we would go there. It was a real heavy Irish family, and they stuck together. They were their best friends. So, uh, I don't know, when one of my uncles moved to California, we went to California, and then they moved back to Denver, we moved back to, well, it was Aurora. And so I was in Aurora until I was oh, 17, but I got pregnant when I was 15 and had a baby. Wow. I thought I was grown up. And I was going to beauty school down in Denver, and I had a a friend, and uh, we would go over to the Air Force Base, ditch school, and go over there. And we had Air Force boyfriends, and they would buy booze. And we would go to Red Rocks and sit there and drink. And I remember I remember coming back, but uh, not remember much of anything else. And I remember coming home and walking in the house and knowing if, if I say anything, she's going to know I'm drunk. She's going to know I drank my mom. And this happened quite often. Uh, so I was like 16 at the time. And I had this baby. Then I met this fellow, he was in the Air Force, thought I fell in love. Um, by then I was 17, and uh, he got out of the Air Force, and six weeks later he sent me a plane ticket, and I flew to San Francisco. He was from a very wealthy family, and uh, we got married on New Year's Eve, 1958. Then my mom brought my little girl out, she was a year and a half old. And then I proceeded to get pregnant with two more children, little girls. And we had to go to these cocktail parties with the mayor of San Francisco, with the governor of California. My father-in-law was very, very wealthy. And we were expected, because my husband was an only child and worked in the company, to go to these parties, and I drank, and I learned how to drink. Didn't like most of the time what they had to drink, tasted like crap, but I drank. Then we got a divorce, and I was legally, legally able to drink in bars. How long were you married? How long did that marriage last? I was married to him for six years. So you were probably like 22 or 23? 17, 23, 23, 22 and a half, 23, something like that. Okay. And I used to go to this bar. Uh, what the heck was the name of it? Artichoke Joe's in San Bruno. I used to wash my clothes in the laundromat next door. And then I would go over to Artichoke Joe's. And I worked and I took care of my three little girls in a one-bedroom apartment on Heller Street in San Bruno. And I drank and I got drunk and 
and I just kept drinking and getting drunk and and I was a blackout drinker. That lasted until, uh, gosh, my kids were little. Tell me about your blackouts, because you had kids. Was that scary? What was that like to be a blackout drinking mother who had kids that still counted it didn't on you? It scare me because everybody blacked out. Just went along with the... It just went along with what you did, you know. If you drank, you blacked out. Just, I never knew anyone that didn't. Uh, gosh, I guess I was, was almost 23. I was 23 when I left there. And fell in love with another man. And I went to New Mexico, where he was at. And uh, did your got drinking? Pregnant. Did uh, your drinking change when you moved to New Mexico? Uh, well, I didn't drink as much or, or or as often. Let's put it that way. Okay. Uh, but we would go into town to gallop, and we would dance and drink. I, dancing was part of it, and uh, I got pregnant. Again, and I put my kids in this car, and and we went to uh, Las Vegas with this man, and then he uh, decided he didn't want to be with us, and left me in a trailer park with three little girls and me pregnant, and uh, I passed out in the telephone booth and the ambulance came, my kids went, they, they took my kids to some homes or a home and I went to the hospital and they were, uh, there was problems with his pregnancy and I don't know, I was in the hospital a few days and then they brought my kids back to me and we went, this friend that I had met, she took me in with my children, and we partied. We went out, Las Vegas. And back then, they never said anything about drink, not drinking and being pregnant. I met this man, and he took me and my children up to this his house and on, on the hill. And, uh, and he supported me and my children. And then I got so sick, and I called my mother. She didn't know where I was at. And she came from Aurora to Las Vegas and took me, brought me home. And then I got mad at her because she was drunk all the time. So I went to Utah where this, where this man that I had gotten pregnant with his family lived, and they took me in. His sister took me in. And I had this baby there. But I was drinking all the time, and partying, and dancing, and drinking. Why this baby even lived, I will never know. But it was a little boy. Somehow I went from there, oh gosh, to San Diego, partied some more. Met a sailor, 
got pregnant. Wow, you were quite the catch, huh? <laughs> quite a, a dude magnet. Yeah. And he, he decided I should get married to him. I didn't want to get married. Married him, was married to him for 12 and a half years. Ended up in Florida. He got out of the service. Here I've got these five kids. Went across the United States. He was a drunk. He's still a drunk. I loved him. Boy, what a chance. And I got some jobs in, in Florida. It was my time. And I had a couple of, had a really good job. Waitressing. Why did you leave him? Because he was a drunk. Hmm. Because he was a drunk. He was a drunk. He wasn't a nice person. He still isn't a nice person. He's still around? He, my kids, my daughter, youngest daughter, moved him from Florida uh, so a few years ago to Fort Collins. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was me $14,000 back child support. Not, I'm not a happy person over this at all. Not at all. Done a lot of force, a lot of force steps on this sucker. <laughs> so anyway, um, <laughs> that's a whole story in itself. So anyway, I, uh, I went to this bar one night with this friend of mine. We were bar hopping in Florida. This man come up to me, taps me on the shoulder. He says, you want to dance? I thought, oh, oh. Here we go. Here I am. Well, by then I couldn't have any more babies. Lucky me. <laughs> had six. And I fell in love. This man could dance like nobody else I'd ever met. And he drove me home, and I never saw him again. And I went looking for him for two weeks. Could not find him. And I went in the same bar every night. I was so tired of getting dressed up after work and looking for this man and getting drunk every night. Went in the bar one night, Friday night, Saturday night, something. And the bouncer turns me around. He says, come here, Arlene, I want to show you something. Walks me outside. And he says, see that taxi cab over there? And I says, yeah. And he says, Bill's over there. And there's, there he stood. And that was the start of 35 years. Wow. Yeah. So, he said, Bill came over and he picked me up and swung me around and he says, I get off at midnight. Don't go away. And I waited for him. And that was the beginning of was the beginning of everything. 
And so we ended up getting, we came across the United States with the three kids and his nephew and, and we had booze and we got drunk every night and we always had a pound of pot in the, in the van and we sold my house and oh my God, it was just silliness, craziness, absolute craziness. We headed up to New York when we left Florida, and we were gonna go, we were gonna go find his children, his two children. In Florida, we took, I took some of the money, and I bought a three and a half carat diamond ring. Beautiful ring. We bought it for an investment. My friend was in the jewelry business. And I had it on my hand. And he said, we get to New York, you have to take that ring off. I said, I'm not taking this ring off. He says, Arlene, they will cut your hand off. I said, they're going to have to cut my arm off. I am not taking this ring off. You're going to have to leave it in the van. I said, I'm not leaving it in the van. We argued. We were just in Georgia, in Atlanta. I said, I'm not taking the ring off. He stopped the van just outside of, just north of Atlanta. He turns around. I said, what are you doing? And it was like midnight. He said, we're not going to New York. He says, one, you walk barefoot and they spit on, this, on the sidewalks and you go barefoot all the time. Two, you won't take the ring off and they're gonna cut your hand off for a three-and-a-half-carat diamond ring that you're wearing. And three, there's warrants out for my arrest. For, for, for what? For unpaid traffic tickets. I says, oh, okay. So we turned around, went south, back to Atlanta. And then we went to my brother's house and uh, we picked the kids up and we came out west. We had no idea where we were going, but it was west. We ended up in uh, Vail. We were in a motel. The bloody rents looked like telephone numbers. This was in 1979. Bill got sick, he got pleurisy really bad. I was working in a restaurant as a hostess, and I came home one night, and he was so sick, and I sat down and to him, and I says, I have to get you out of here. It was snow. It was in May. It was horrible. I says, where, are we, where can we go? He says, south. I says, okay. So we bundled him up the next morning, and we left. We went to Aurora, we, everything was in storage, packed it all up, put it back in a U-Haul trailer, and we headed south. We got as far as Colorado Springs, we couldn't go any farther, it was a whiteout. <sighs> I went to a liquor store and got some booze. We were in a motel room. We had two motel rooms. We just drank, passed out, 
Got up the next morning, loaded the van, and off we went south. And we ended up in Phoenix. And there we were. And one night, he and his nephew went out, and they got drunk. And I picked them up. Something happened. I, don't, I can't remember what it was. But I, Bill beat me up. He beat me up really bad, and I don't know why. Well, he was drunk, he was horribly drunk. He had never touched me before, but he beat me up. He, he went to AA, and then he took me to a meeting that had Al-Anon. <laughs> so I went to Al-Anon. And I sat in that room, and it was like they were talking about me. What the hell were they talking about me for? <laughs> and I felt like I was <laughs> like I was in a football field and there was a there was some kind of game going on, but they didn't tell me what the rules were. And they threw me out in the middle of it. And they was talking about me. Did you share at that meeting? No. Like, no. No. <laughs> no, they were getting me. I was getting battered. I told him, I can't go back there. That's not a nice place to be. Two days later, I took my daughter and we were shopping up at this mall. Now, I had been drinking. We went in this dress shop. For some reason, I had closed my eyes and I opened my eyes and my daughter disappeared. And this dress shop like went on forever with dresses, 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 dresses. And my daughter was gone. I thought, holy shit. What the hell's going on? And I started crying. And I shut my eyes again. And I was sobbing because my daughter was gone. And that lasted forever. And I opened my eyes up again, and there she was. And what that was, what I was told it was, was a blackout, an emotional blackout from drinking. So I called Bill's sponsor, and he came and got us, and I was shaking so bad. And we got in the car and I told him what happened. And I told him I needed to go to, to the mental hospital, that I was crazy. And he says, Arlene, I think you're an alcoholic. When was the last time you'd had a drink? And I told him. He says, I think, I think what happened was you had an emotional blackout breakdown. I think you need to go to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. I think you're drunk. Do you ever have blackout? I says, yeah. Does that mean not remembering? He says, yeah. I says, I always do that. He says, I think you're an alcoholic. I can't tell you you are. 
I said, okay. So I started going to Alcoholics Anonymous. And they kept telling me, you'll hear your story, Arlene. You'll hear your story. Listen. And I would not say I was an alcoholic. Because what if I'm not? And I couldn't hear my story. And they kept talking and talking. And, and I'd hear bits and pieces of stuff. And so one day, one, one evening, they took me down to detox center. I guess I'd been sober for four months. I, was, I wouldn't drink. Because what if I am an alcoholic? So they took me down to the detox center for a meeting. And down at 7th and Washington. And I walked to the door. They got me to the door. There was about seven of us. And I, uh, I got to the door. And this, this room was huge. And there was all these bodies laying all over the floor. And there was puke. And there was piss. There was shit. And these bodies. Women, men, young, old. And I just stood at the door. And I thought, I'm not one of these. I'm not one of these. I took a deep breath. And I felt, I'm not an alcoholic. I felt cocky, arrogant, and I'll never have to go to one of those damn Alcoholics Anonymous meetings again, ever, as long as I live. <laughs> so they got me through the room, slipping on piss, and puke, <laughs> stepping over bodies. Oh my God, this room was huge. Got me to the back room. And, uh, and I sat down there still feeling pretty cocky and arrogant. And my thoughts are going, it's the last damn Alcoholics Anonymous meeting I'm ever going to have to sit in unless I go with Bill. And I sat down. And I looked up, and here was this big picture. And it was like a picture of, of a forest. It was really pretty. And there was this calligraphy written on it. And I looked at it. And I said, if you drink to be sociable, you're not a social drinker. was my story. I thought, oh my God, that's my story. I have to go to Alcoholics Anonymous the rest of my life. Oh shit. I always had to drink to be sociable. I'm an alcoholic. And the smugness went away, and the arrogance went away, but a comfortability set in me that, uh, oh look, I get goosebumps. Um, there was a comfortability to set in that it was okay, that that was my story. 
I tell that in meetings, and it's so strange because there's been so many young women that uh, when I tell that, that they'll, they'll look at me and they'll go, afterwards, that was my story. Yeah, it's, it's like I can relate to that because I could only become sociable after I was drinking. Yeah. I couldn't make phone calls. I couldn't, you know. Yeah. I couldn't dance. I couldn't talk. So, booze did for me what I couldn't do for myself. That's the way it was. Today, God does for me what I can't do for myself. Mm. I was I was about six, eight months sober when we went to a state convention in Phoenix. Oh God, I got all I got. I well, I was so thin. I was so little, uh, and I got this white jumpsuit because that was all popular then. Pretty, pretty jumpsuit. Got all prettied up, and when it came to dancing, and 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 Bill made pulled me out on the dance floor, and we were dancing. And afterwards, I ran in the bathroom, and I was crying because I didn't know how to dance sober, <laughs> and I knew I looked horrible out there. I knew I did. The day afterwards, a bunch of women came up to me and said, Oh my God, you and Bill look so good out there on the dance floor. And I said, Why didn't you tell me that last night? <laughs> and my life has been okay since then because I can dance sober. And my husband had no bones in his body. That man, that man could dance sober. And he didn't know that he could do that. And I, I today, I today, as a sober woman of Alcoholics Anonymous, the old women back then were tough. And they said, you dress sober. You dress like a sober woman of Alcoholics Anonymous. You don't dress like you're out on the streets or in a bar. You hold your head up. You dress like you're a sober woman. You come in those meetings like you're a sober woman of Alcoholics Anonymous. And you walk out there so people know that you're a sober woman of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I don't know how, I don't know how to be anything but what those old-timers told me to be. Because they knew how to be sober. And I held on to them for dear life. And I know I come out, I know I come off sounding pretty tough, but this is a killer. This is a killer disease. And I've seen so many people die. And, uh, it scares me. Uh, it's not funny. 
this disease is not funny. And I take it very seriously. Uh, I like being sober. I like seeing other people be sober. I remember the, what, there was an old man, Al Maxwell. He was a retired attorney. He used to take uh, the beginners meetings in Phoenix many years ago. And he was tough. And he used to say, if you don't think you're going to stay sober, get your ass out there. And don't come in here court low. And I thought he was ornery. I thought he was mean. But I know what he means. And I believe that man. And I understand that today. And have been for a long time. Uh, I know I come across sounding pretty ornery from time to time. But I get scared for these people. I'd like everybody to stay sober, but they're not going to. I'd like everybody just to stay in these rooms. They're not going to. So, I just, uh, I just stay. The only thing that keeps me sober is God. That's who keeps me sober and has been for 41 years. And I'm grateful for that. So that's the deal for me. Arlene, thank you for sharing that question. If you could go back and give a piece of advice or just say anything to day one, Arlene, what would you say? Find an old timer and hold on to them. They've got what you want. Hold on to them. Someone that's been sober for a long time. That's what I did. Yeah. Anything else you'd like to share? Yeah. There is a man, his name's Eddie Mills. He still lives in Phoenix. And I cried for two years. He took me out in the desert one time, drew this big old round circle, and I'm crying. And he says, okay, now you get out in that circle. He says, and you pick up everything that doesn't belong on the desert. He gave me a a bag, a sack. And he says, you put everything in this sack that doesn't belong in that circle. And I did. Pop tops, beer bottles. By the time I got through, I wasn't crying and had no idea what the hell I was crying about. I had it in the bag, and I, I said, what was that all about? He says, now step back. He says, look how much of God's world you picked up and cleaned up. I looked at it and I thought, I was less than a year sober. 
I thought, is he crazy? But I learned over the years the story of that, the lesson of that. It took me out of me, I stopped crying, and I did clean up a little bit of God's world. He would take me down alleys. I remember one time he took me down this alley and there was this garage and it was falling apart. The wood was paint off of it. And he said, what do you see there, Arlene? I says, a falling down garage, Eddie. He says, no, you don't. He says, it's a bunch of trees. I says, are you crazy? He says, no, it's a bunch of trees, Arlene. What he saw was the trees that built that garage. The uncut trees that built that garage. And that's what he taught me. Then he sat me on this cement one time, grass, and we watched ants. And he watched me and sh or showed me how these ants helped each other. If one ant was carrying a little piece of bread and couldn't manage it itself, how another ant would come along and, and help that ant hmm. carry that piece of bread. How they helped each other. And I, we did that for about an hour, and I thought, really get into it. You know? Wow. You know, some people watch that on TV for an hour. Yeah, helping each other. <laughs> I thought, wow. And that's how I learned how to help each other. It's amazing. And then he had me watch two trees, identical, and he said, do you think man could make that? Took two leaves off two different trees. Do you think man could make that? God made that. He's the only one that could make that. What's it like today? Today, ah, uh, Today I have peace. Today I don't have bad days. Today I have sometimes some bad moments and good days. I have good days. I don't I don't have bad days. I have uh, my husband died almost seven years ago. I have uh, I have a good life. I uh, I don't worry about anything. I have nothing to worry about. Nothing. How did you cope with your husband's death? <sighs> My husband died September twenty sixth. 2013. 
April 7th, April 8th, 2013, our granddaughter, 23-year-old granddaughter, died of a lethal overdose. And my husband found, came to a meeting and, and told me that. And that whole meeting took us home, drove us home. And that broke our hearts. She was our princess, our little princess. Five months later, my husband died. And I got to, uh, I got to have my head on his chest when he took his last breath. I got to have my head on his chest for the last four and a half minutes of his life. I got to love him from November of 1998 till today. I, I, I got to love, totally, uh, gosh, it's hard to explain. I've been married four times, and I still love this man. This man that I met in a bar that was an active drug addict and drunk, and I saw God turn him into a sober man and turn him into Santa Claus. Yeah, I see the pictures. Yeah. He does look like Santa Claus. Now, I saw that happen. I saw it happen. And it was like, And I got to love this man through the whole thing. And I still love him. I've never loved any, anyone like I've loved him. And love him. As you can tell, mm -hmm. he's everywhere. Everywhere, everywhere. Love of my life will always love him. Don't need a man, don't want another man. My daughters try to say, oh, get online, Mom, why don't you just date, have a companion. And I told her, I says, no, Pops and my marriage was perfect. She says, I lived it, Mom. No, it wasn't perfect. I says, no, it was perfect. When it was good, it was so good, it would take your breath away. And when it was bad, it was the ships. Why would I want anything less than that? I got to experience that, experience that sober. Absolutely sober. And loved every bit of it. Don't regret any of it. Nothing, the good, the bad, the ugly. I'm grateful for all of it. So, I'm... I'm a, I'm a grateful old woman. Never to be called an old lady. I'm an old woman, sober.
Thanks, Arlene, for sitting down and sharing your story with us. I met Arlene in her home for this interview, and if you could be there, you would see photos of her family going way back in time. With trinkets decorating the walls, and a room where she does glass art, and I can only guess, crochet. In conclusion, I'd like to read a quote. Ever has it been that love knows not its own depth until the hour of separation. Khalil Gibran. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.